0: Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The word ransom traces its roots through Old French to the Latin word redemptio, which means buying back. God the Son willingly came to Earth to buy us back from sin and death. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, God With Us, with this sermon entitled, The Necessity of the Incarnation, which covers 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 7, and other texts. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And, uh, you know, we've been in this series these past few weeks, where we've been looking at at, at the wonder, the glory of the incarnation. Uh, And this week, this week we get to ask the question, why? You know, why was it necessary that God come in human flesh? Why did the word have to become flesh and dwell among us? And Paul, in our text this morning, Paul, he begins to give us the answer. He tells Timothy, this young pastor in the city of Crete, he tells him that God's people are to pray every kind of prayer for all kinds of people. And he says this is good for this reason, starting in verse three. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you as the savior of our souls and we ask, Lord is the one who possesses all power and yet who has shown yourself to be so gentle and tender in Jesus. Would you speak this morning in your word and by your spirit in such a way, Lord, that we would be transfixed by the wonder and the glory of your son. Would you draw our hearts to him and lead us to trust him in full. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. One of my weekly dad duties is I drive my daughter, Mary Neal, uh, to school uh, every morning. And it's not, I mean, it sounds like some great ordeal. It's really not because I happen to work at the same place she goes to school. It's pretty simple, really. Uh, And every morning as we get in the car, before I drop her off in the carpool lane and then pull out and go to my office, uh, I always try to pray with her in the morning. We'll thank God for the day, for the opportunity to, to serve and to honor Him. We'll pray for Him to give us His Spirit, to equip us to do whatever it is that we are needful of so that we would glorify and honor Him with our lives. And, and this one particular morning this past week, I prayed that prayer and I looked in the rearview mirror and I could see in Mary Neal's eyes there was a question burning. And if you're a parent, you know those moments. You can see the gears turning in your child's head. And I said, Mary Neal, what is it? And she goes, well, Jesus is God, right? I said, yeah, Jesus is God. She goes, well, so he's God, but Mary and Joseph are his parents? I said, yeah, Mary is his mother, and Joseph is his adopted father, but he's God's eternally begotten son. And then Mary Neal's eyes get a little more quizzical and confused, and she goes, well, how is he Mary and Joseph's son if he's God? How, how is he God, and then their kid? And this this is the moment when Pastor Dad gets excited because I have spent years preparing for this moment. Here is my daughter asking me the deep things of God and I'm going, I've got all this seminary training, all these books that I've read, all this scripture I've memorized. And then it hits me I have 10 seconds before the door opens and she goes outside. And so this is what vomits out of my mouth. There's one God who has eternally existed in three distinct purses, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because he loves us, he sent his only son to assume human flesh, sacrificing none of his divinity while assuming all of our humanity because he wanted to save people like you and me. And then Mary Neal's eyes glazed over and she said, uh, okay, dad, see ya, and she left. <laughs> And I sat there in the car, just kicking myself going, I just fumbled that question. My, my daughter is asking me what may be the most important question in all the world, and I couldn't answer it. Not in a way that she could understand. And, you know, and it struck me as I was driving away that, that my daughter, she was wrestling with something that so many of us miss in the Christmas season. She was recognizing something that I, even as a pastor, sometimes forget that we, when we gather around our family for Christmas, when we're sitting around the tree, when we're unwrapping our presents, when we are eating meals together in celebration of this holiday, we are, whether we know it or not, stumbling on holy ground. We are celebrating a mystery that is beyond human comprehension. Something that on the surface it sounds like a myth or a fairy tale. Something that some human made up because it sounds good. And yet, if this is true, if God really came and dwelt among us, then this is a truth not just to confess. This is a truth to cling to with everything that we possess because it is the truth upon which our salvation depends. Why? Because we need a mediator. All through the scriptures, there is this ever deepening recognition that because of human sin, a chasm has opened up between man and God. A chasm of such heights and depths and width that no human being can cross to the other side. That there is this life that we were made to have, that God designed us to enjoy, and yet because of sin we've lost. And it is left in every single one of our hearts this void this void that we are all trying desperately to fill and we are gathering to ourselves money and possessions and sex and fame and applause and hoping it will fill that void, but all it's really doing is leaving us more and more dissatisfied and wondering there has to be something better, there has to be something bigger, there has to be something else out there, something more than this. There is this cry, this cry you find on the lips of Job in Job chapter nine. This cry for someone who will come and who will stand between God and man, a mediator, who in the language of Job will lay his hand on God and lay his hand on man and somehow restore what sin has broken. Paul, Paul says that mediator, that's what God has provided in Jesus Christ. He says, there is one God who created all men, a God whose desire is that all men would be saved, whose heart is not hard towards sinners, but soft. And that desire, that desire has reached concrete expression in the coming of a man who can lay his hand on God and lay his hand on humanity and finally make whole what sin is broken. The one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And why is Jesus such a fit mediator? Paul says first because he's the man. Verse five, he says the man Jesus Christ. Now, that, that word, that phrase, that can lead to some questions in our minds. I mean, we, some people have read that and thought, well, is this saying that Jesus isn't God? That Jesus is just a human just like you and me and that there's nothing that really distinguishes him from us other than maybe what he did with his life. Others have looked at that and thought, well, maybe Jesus was God, but then he became man and he left behind his deity. But if you read Paul... Uh, Paul makes pretty plain in his writings, not only elsewhere, but in the book of 1 Timothy, that nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, Paul's the same guy who in Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwelled bodily, in the flesh. Uh, Paul's the same guy who in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, There is one source of grace, mercy, and peace, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the same guy who in chapter 1 three times calls Jesus Lord, which is not something a Jewish man does unless he thinks that figure is God. And he is also the one who in verse 15 of the very first chapter here of 1 Timothy says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, implying two things. One, Jesus preexisted the incarnation. And two, Jesus was making decisions before the incarnation which not sure if you're aware of this you and I aren't doing and then if that's not enough to convince you that he thinks Jesus is God in human flesh all you have to do is go to chapter 3 verse 16 great is the mystery of godliness Paul says he was manifested he being the son in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit. Who is Jesus? He is the revelation of the living God in human flesh whose divinity is testified to by the works he did in life but also by his resurrection from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Denying Jesus' divinity, Paul is not. What Paul is doing is he is hammering home That while Jesus is fully divine, he is also fully, completely, and totally human. And this is something that I think we struggle to get our heads around. You know, we confess, we just read the Apostles' Creed, this this reality that in Jesus Christ, there is one person who has two distinct natures, fully God and fully man. But the truth is, is while we might confess that, we might say we believe that, I think practically, practically most of us don't actually think that's true. And let me give you an example of what I mean. If you ever think of Jesus experiencing some kind of trial or some kind of obstacle or facing some kind of difficulty in life, temptation or sickness or sadness or death, is there a part of you that kind of thinks, well, he might've faced those things, but it wasn't like me? because he's God and I'm not. Is there a part of you that looks at Jesus and thinks of him in maybe the same way you think of Clark Kent? He's wearing the glasses, but he doesn't really need them. And underneath that suit, he's just Superman. And so while he may face the same stuff, he is not facing it in the same way. Jesus, he is not like me. Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says, when you are looking at Jesus Christ, you are looking at the man, a man who has assumed, God who has assumed all of your humanity, every single thing that is a part of you being human, except for sin, Jesus possesses. And you see this all through the gospels. When Jesus was born, despite the song, it was not a silent night. Jesus cried. Jesus woke up his parents in the middle of the night because he had to nurse at his mother's breast in the same way we did. When Jesus grew up, he wasn't like this illusion of a human body who already had a fully developed brain that knew everything. Luke 2 says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, which means he learned the same way you did. There were things he did not know and knowledge that he accumulated over time The the scripture that just seems to exude from Jesus, that just tumbles off of his tongue all through his life, that wasn't just baked in. Jesus learned it. He lived his life as a man who really believed what God said in Deuteronomy 8, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father, He heard it, he listened to it, he meditated on it, he memorized it, he prayed through it, and so it poured from him. Jesus didn't float through life free from its burdens. In Mark 4, Jesus is so exhausted by the work of ministry that Jesus does this really strange thing. Jesus passes out in the bottom of a boat, and he's so tired that when a storm comes that threatens to sink the boat, Jesus doesn't even wake up, Jesus just lays there. If, you've, if you're a parent of a small child, you know what this feels like. If you've ever fallen asleep in a strange place at a strange time and woken up and wondered, how did I get here? Jesus knows that. When Jesus faced temptation, he didn't face it as somebody wearing a Teflon coat of divinity, where the arrows of Satan just bounced off. Jesus, Hebrews 5 says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. When Jesus fought temptation, he fought it with the same tools that God gives to his people. The empowerment of the spirit and the words of scripture. And you see, even at the very heart of Satan's temptations, the emphasis on Jesus living as a man. Because what does Satan tempt Jesus to do? Jesus, who is tired and hungry and has already shown that he is able to turn water into wine, which is an act saying, hey, the creator of God is walking around amongst us. Satan comes to Jesus and says, you know, you don't have to be hungry. You can take that stone and you can make it bread, which means he's asking Jesus to do what? Don't live like a man. Live like God. God. And what does Jesus say? No. He uses the same words I quoted earlier. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Jesus knew hunger and thirst. Jesus knew sadness and disappointment. Jesus knew joy and he knew grief. Jesus knew anger. He assumed, as Calvin says, Not just our flesh, but our feelings. He sacrificed none of his divinity. And yet, he assumed the whole of our humanity. And this is something that is absolutely essential to our salvation for this reason. If the whole of our humanity is what has been corrupted by sin. Soul and body. If everything that we are has been corrupted and broken because of the fall and it is the whole of our humanity that God would restore, then it is the whole of our humanity that Christ must assume. As the church fathers put it, that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. You know, I I want us to just let this wash over us for just a moment. Because I think that far too often, all of us at some point or another, we have sat there and wondered if, If I draw near to God, if I come close to him, would he really draw near to me? Because we live in this world where everywhere we have experienced rejection and abandonment. I mean, as I look around this room, I may not know every one of you individually, but I guarantee we have in this room children whose parents left them. We have husbands and wives whose spouses have walked away. We have people who have had friends that they thought were closer than family, closer than a brother or sister, those friends, friends who betrayed them, friends who abandoned them, friends who said, I don't want to be seen with you anymore. And as those who live in that world and who have experienced those things, there is this large piece of us that goes, well, if that's what the people around me who are like me do, how much more will God walk away when he sees what I am? Because we see the things that we've done. We hear the words that we've spoken to our children. We see the thoughts that have run through our minds and the disordered affections that rule our hearts. And there is this peace that goes, all I see it is sin and guilt and shame and grime. And how could a holy God ever look at me and say, that is something I love. That is something I would draw near to. And so we fear that God would not want any part of us. Paul says the man, Jesus Christ, He casts all of those fears away. Because in taking on human flesh, God is saying this to his people. He's saying, my desire, it is not only to save, it is to draw you close. And here is how close I would come. I would join my divinity to your humanity in such a way that it can never be torn apart. Jesus, Jesus is the one who says, I am not ashamed to be your brother. I am not ashamed to be seen with you. I am the one who took on human flesh, not because I had to, but because I chose to, because I wanted to join you to myself and to bring you into the life that only I possess. I took on the whole of you that the whole of you would be healed. I don't just want part of you. I want the whole thing. That, that is the wonder of the incarnation and what Jesus was in his life here on earth. That is what he remains now. He, it's not that he was the man Jesus Christ, he is and will always be the man Jesus Christ. Which means you have someone sitting in the heavens who knows exactly what you are going through. You have someone who understands what it is like to be tempted, to be hurt, to be wounded, to be betrayed, to be rejected, and even to die. Are you afraid to draw near to God? Paul says look at the man Jesus Christ where God, wherein God drew near to you. Do you fear that God could not make you whole? Look to the man Jesus Christ who took on the whole of your humanity that you would be truly healed. Are you worried that God might be indifferent? That he would not understand what you're going through? Look to the man who endured everything that you and I have and yet did it without sin. We have one in Christ, who because he is by very nature God, knows what it's like to be God. But who because he is also by very nature man, he knows what it's like to be a man, a human. Which means, the mediator Job hungered for, who could lay his hand on God and lay his hand on man and bring them both together, that's the mediator that we have in him. But Paul says, if Jesus is only the man, he is not yet fit to be our mediator. He needs to not just be the man, he needs to be the ransom too. You know, Sometimes, I think in all of our, our Christmas zeal, we f- miss this part of the Christmas story. We talk about the virgin birth. We celebrate the angels who are screaming to the heavens and singing to the shepherds. We, we talk about the wise men bringing their gifts. We talk about all the, the pageantry and the wonder of the birth. But one of the things we sometimes forget, even in church sometimes, is that Jesus didn't just come into this world so that he could be with us and be like us. Jesus came to die. Uh, Paul, in these verses, Paul moves straight from the incarnation, the man Jesus Christ, to the crucifixion. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And Paul is not just innovating something here. He's not creating some new doctrine out of uh, of whole cloth. He's echoing Jesus' own words. When Jesus in Mark 10 tells his disciples the reason he came, he says this, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. You know, ransom is a concept that we're all familiar with. I mean, if you've watched, I mean, if you were just vaguely familiar with movies and television, you have seen some film where a kidnapper demands a ransom for the return of a hostage. Uh, You've seen terrorists coming to governments and saying, you need to pay this ransom or we're gonna wreak havoc upon your people. And whether you realize this or not, uh, ransom affected every one of our lives deeply just this past summer. Because what happened this past summer? Some hackers stole a computer password that just so happened to give them the power to shut down an oil pipeline and said, the only way we're gonna set that pipeline free is if you pay us $5 million, which the oil company did. Um, But we should remember, the reason I say that we're all familiar with this, even if we don't remember it, uh, you and I actually paid for it because the gas prices shot up, didn't they? We all paid a ransom to the guys who stole that password. Uh, Ransoms are these things that take people who were held captive by negative circumstances and they set them free. You see it in the Bible. Uh, Ransoms are what take slaves and set them free. Uh, Ransoms are what bring back exiles from foreign lands. Ransoms are things that murderers have to pay if they are to be delivered from death. And yet there is also a ransom that the scripture speaks of, of something, a ransom that is far deeper and far more important. A ransom that every single one of us needs to be paid and yet none of us actually can. Because here's the teaching of scripture. We may not have been kidnapped. We may not be physical slaves. We may not be in danger of terrorists. But we are all, we are all slaves to sin and death. And that is a ransom that we not only need, that is a ransom that we do not have the power to pay ourselves. There's no amount of money in the world that can buy you out of that condition. There's no amount of power. There's no amount of good works. As the Psalmist says in Psalm 49, Man cannot ransom another. He can't set someone else free. He can't even set himself free because the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. The Bible, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned against the Lord and they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, It wasn't just Adam and Eve who fell. It was all of us. Now Paul in Romans, he hammers this home. He says, all have sinned. Everyone without distinction. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin, it is the same wages of sin that met Adam and Eve. It's death. God warned Adam and Eve what would come. He gave them everything that he had made and said, there is just one tree that you are not to eat of. And Adam and Eve, they decided they knew better than God and they ate of the tree despite the fact that God said to them that this is what would happen. You will surely die. And if God is to be true, which we should hope he is, otherwise we can't trust him to save. For God to be true, that means that man having sinned, man has to die. And that is a sentence from which there is no escape. No human escape. You can't buy your way out. You can't muscle your way out. This would be the end to every single one of our stories if it were not for one glorious truth. The same God, the same God who warned Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit of that tree, they would die. His desire The desire referenced right here in 1 Timothy chapter two. The desire you see manifested through every page of scripture in promise after promise and deliverance after deliverance of the faithful God pursuing his unfaithful people. His desire is not to condemn, it's to save. And the ransom that we need, the ransom we can't pay That is a ransom that God can and God has paid in and through Jesus Christ. Because who's Jesus? Jesus is the one who because he is man can die in the place of men, And who because he is the only one without sin can actually be the perfect sacrifice for that sin. But he is also the one who, because he's God, can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He can offer up a death, a sacrifice, that doesn't have finite worth like ours, but a sacrifice of infinite worth, because it is the life of the Son of God. A sacrifice that can atone, not just for the sins of a few, but the sins of the whole world. We have one who as a man can die, but who because he is God cannot be consumed by death and instead consumes death in the way that fire consumes straw. We have one in Jesus who is the true mediator between God and man the living, breathing expression of God's heart to save his people. One who is able to lay his hand on us both and not just lay his hands on us, but remove every obstacle that has stood in the way to wash us clean, to make us new, to restore us to life. And he is the one who is saying to us, even here in First Timothy 2, every Christmas season, there is life you were made for, life you have lost, and life I would give you if only you would come. The one question I have for us this morning is why would you not? Because Jesus, this Jesus that we see here, Jesus is not someone who came as a man and gave his life as a ransom because he was forced to. The one who calls you to himself, he's the one who came as a man and gave his life as a ransom because he wanted to. Verse six, says he gave himself as a ransom for all. The father doesn't grab the son and hold him down on the altar. The son climbs up of his own volition because he loves you and he loves me and he would save us in full. One of the greatest stories of sacrificial love in the English language it's Charles Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities. And if you're not familiar with that book, it's set in the midst of the French Revolution where all of France is in an uproar because revolutionaries have toppled the royal government and they are beginning to be, they've begun this reign of terror where anyone that they think is associated with the nobility, anyone who might have royal blood or who might have helped the king and the queen, they are trying to find them, arrest them, condemn them, and kill them. So that there are thousands of people who every day are being herded to the guillotine to be beheaded because of their supposed association with the royals. Well, in the midst of all of that terror, there is a man named Charles Darnay. He's a young man who has a wife and a young daughter, a little girl named Lucy, just like one of my twins. And Charles Darnay is accused of being someone who has associations with nobility and because of that, Charles Darnay is condemned to die. And he is sitting in a prison cell, waiting for the night to pass so that the very next morning he can be led down the stairs to a cart where he'll be loaded up with other prisoners condemned to die and led to the guillotine where his head will be separated from his body. And on that night, Something unthinkable happens. A man, a man who happens to look a lot like Charles Darnay, a man named Sidney Carton comes to his cell. And Sidney Carton drugs Charles. And he changes clothes with Charles and he tricks the guards into thinking the man sleeping on the floor is Sidney Carton and the man standing in front of them is Charles Darnay so that the guards carry Charles out of the prison and down the steps into a carriage where he is restored to his wife and daughter and Sidney Carton remains alone in the room waiting to die. And when the morning comes, Sidney is led down the stairs and to the cart And a little, a young girl comes and thinking that it's Charles Darnay, grabs hold of his hand, just wanting some comfort before they both go to die. And when she grabs his hand, he looks up and she realizes that the man holding her hand is not Charles Darnay at all. And there is shock on her face and Sidney raises his finger and he puts it to his lips to hush her before she cries out. And the young girl, she whispers this, are you dying for him? And Sydney whispers back, and his wife and his child, hush, yes. She responds, oh, you will let me hold your brave hand, stranger. And Sydney said, hush, yes, my poor sister, to the last. If you were to come to Jesus, and you were to place your hand in his, and you were to say to him, have you died for me? Paul says, I can tell you what his answer would be. Jesus would look you square in the eyes and he would say, yes, my child. It's the very reason for which I came. And I would hold not just your hand I would pick you up and I would put you on my shoulders and I would carry you into death itself not to remain there but to come out on the other side and into the life for which you were made. If only you will come." The God of the Gospel is not a God who leaves his people sitting on the other side of an unbridgeable chasm. He's not a God who says you can come near, but I'm gonna hold you at arm's length and I'm gonna hold my nose because of the smell. The God of the gospel, he's the one who in Christ comes into the mud and the dirt and the grime and the pain and the smell of this world, even into death itself, not to hold you away from him, but to draw you closer still. If only, If only we would lay down our pride and say, Jesus, there is a ransom that I need, that I cannot pay, but I know that you have. As Augustine says, this is the way. Walk in humility so that you may come to eternity. Christ as God is the country to which we are going. Christ as man is the way by which we get there. The mediator we need, what we're saying this Christmas is that's the mediator we have. If only we will come and fall into his embrace. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so grateful that we have such a kind and tender Savior who would come near, who would draw us near, who would pull us close, and who would make us whole. Would you give us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, hearts that long for him, and would you make us whole?